Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you bring us into your presence today, that you remove the distractions that are in our mind and the places that our minds go, and help us just to be present here um, and really appreciate your presence. Let us connect with what John has to teach us and let us connect with one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have this little nursing mother's room back here which was originally my office. I was alone in that little windowless office for six months when we were starting the church. And then it became the place where we count offering, and it also became the place where, like, the worship team prays together before service. And I don't know if my friend Jen is here, but when we first set up this awkward little divider in there, uh, Jen came in and really calmly goes, this is a great example of how this building almost works. (laughs) And I feel so bad for you guys over here Like another example of how this building almost works. You have the absolute worst seats in the house. I'm so sorry. So if you want to scooch over that direction, you can. Otherwise, like I'll text you a picture of what I look like so you can think about it as I preach. I'm really, really grateful you're here. Um, This week we expanded our worship gatherings, our corporate gatherings. We went from one a week, which is what we, we did for really two years. And then two weeks ago we went to three times a week. And uh, and when we were doing once a week, the Thursday lunch hour, there were probably four to six of us on average, like Holly said, small but mighty. And I shared with a mentor of mine, like the prayer life of our church is not yet a roaring flame. It's more like a steady candle. He goes, yeah, but a candle can still set a forest on fire. And so we've kept that candle of prayer going. But two weeks ago when we expanded uh, to three times a week, uh, we saw our numbers go up. So two weeks ago, there were 21 of us who gathered in this room different times during the week to just seek the heart of God, to ask the Holy Spirit to move. This week, there were 27 of us who got together to pray and just ask God to to move. And it's not like there's a magic number that if we hit 50, oh my gosh, God is going to bless us like crazy. I mean, I would be happy if 50 people came. It's not like that. The thing for us all along since we launched the church has been like this John 15 ethos as a congregation. John 15, 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It tells us that like our fruitfulness in life comes indirectly. So you don't bear fruit by trying to bear fruit. You bear fruit by remaining connected to Jesus, by being attached to the vine. And so we've been, we've been trying to keep at the front of our minds as a congregation. The goal is not church growth. The goal is not try to, to produce fruit for ourselves. Uh, the goal is to remain in Jesus, to be attached to him, to let his life infiltrate our lives. And so uh, I would just invite you. Uh, we have three different times a week where we've been gathering. 
Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays are guided prayer. So somebody is here and we're doing live worship and then praying through a theme. And so this week uh, on Tuesday morning, Cheryl Wood led us through praying scripture. We prayed through, I think, Psalm 71 or 73. 73 is really rich. And then Nina led us on Thursday, especially if you're just learning how to pray. You need some coaching. Come on Tuesday or come on Thursday if you can. And then Wednesdays, this place is just open and we have some really gentle music. You can come for five minutes or for a couple of hours, but the building's open from 12 to 2, and we would just love for you uh, to be here. And tons of you have schedules that can't accommodate these times. I'd love to add more. Wherever you are, uh, we want to be aware of Christ's presence. Wherever you are, if you're on the road for work, if you're changing diapers at home, uh, the invitation is to be attached to Jesus. So whether we do that in formal ways like corporate gatherings or you do that at home while you're changing diapers or while you're caring for an aging parent, uh, the invitation is uh, to remain in Jesus. So I, I really hope that you'll do that. So if you've not been around, at the start of this year, uh, we shared that we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount for eight months. And uh, lots of you have told me you're squirming in a great way in response to wor slowly working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, some of you, I mean, have had great conversations about it. Even those of you who've read 5 through 7, Matthew 5 through 7 ahead, have shared with me like, man, John, I'm really wrestling through the implications of Jesus' teaching. And we've been looking for the last handful of weeks since the beginning of the year at this preamble of Jesus to the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus announces the unlikely beneficiaries of the kingdom of God, the people who are uniquely blessed in his world. And so as a way of just uh, reviewing the Beatitudes so far, I've, I have the Beatitudes and emoji here, okay? So uh, starting with blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are the spiritually run down, those who are on their last leg, those who are feeling hopeless. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who, meek does not mean weak, mean, meek means those who withhold their strength, who reserve their strength, waiting for God to bear his arm and make everything right. This one was a little tricky. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> I got the saliva really captured it, the smile kind of threw it off a little bit, but... Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And then last week in a sermon that for me was really, really meaningful, we looked at uh, the merciful, uh, for they will be shown mercy. Stanley Hauerwas said, each of the Beatitudes names a gift, but it's not presumed that everyone who's a follower of Jesus will possess each Beatitude. Rather, the gift's name in the Beatitudes suggests that the diversity of these gifts will be present in the community of those who've heard Jesus' call to discipleship. Indeed, to learn to be a disciple is to learn why we are dependent on those who mourn or who are meek, though we may not possess that gift ourselves. And the Beatitudes on the whole give us a big picture glimpse of the diversity of gifts and temperaments and blessings that Jesus has for people in his kingdom, the company of the followers of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at the sixth one, uh, which is blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. I've consulted a lot of scholars that are really great. You've heard me mention uh, Dale Bruner a lot, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, Dallas Willard, a bunch of great uh, people giving insight into the nature of the Beatitudes. And, and I got some different insights on the nature of the pure in heart. One scholar said, purity of heart refers to the single-minded devotion to God appropriate to monotheistic faith. 
Having an undivided heart is the corollary of monotheism and requires that there be something big enough and good enough to merit one's whole devotion rather than the functional polytheism of parceling oneself out to a number of loyalties. Because God is so uniquely worthy of our time and attention, we should have an undivided heart toward God. He's another scholar, Scott McKnight. He said, The pure in heart know the temptation of externalism and the social honor that comes with being pure in hands or in observance or in reputation. Think about the Pharisees, Jesus talks about, who love to be noticed for their prayers, for the way that they dress. But the pure in heart, by contrast, see God as a person to be loved. So their first priority is God, and this love leads to loving others well. The pure in heart seek God not for the praise of others, but in order to engage with God. And then finally, one more scholar said, In the Beatitudes, Jesus does not so much bless persons' hands as he does their core. In Hebrew psychology, heart is literally the human center. The home of personal feeling, willing, and thinking, heart, will, and mind are all covered by the biblical term heart. We can translate pure in heart, therefore, as being clear at center. And Jesus is probably blessing persons who are centered on God. And each of these scholars give us a different sense of what the pure in heart means. So we could say that the pure in heart have single-minded devotion to God, that they keep God as their first priority, that they love God and others for the right reasons, not just to be noticed, and that the pure in heart have clear motivation and are centered on God. And in reading this, I thought all of this makes sense, and even it's, it's inspiring. But as I meditated on the passage, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, I kept bumping up against this question. To whom does this beatitude apply? Who is the pure in heart? Who do you know that's actually like this? I think we would all aspire to say, like, we want to be the kind of people who do the right things in the right way for the right reasons, but how often is that our reality? So we go on a mission trip or we do something to serve the poor, but we're also going to make sure that other people hear about it in the process. We do something really nice for somebody, but deep down, there's a recognition that we're doing something nice for them because we believe that their praise will help elevate our social status. Or maybe you'll do even like religious things, but in a, a manipulative kind of way. So you read the Bible, or you'll pray, or you'll go to church, not because you have a pure heart to seek God, but because you're trying to get good juju with God in life, so he's going to help you out with the thing that you're really chiefly concerned about. Or to put it on folks like me, you preach sermons, and you post it, and then you watch like a hawk to see if people like or retweet or comment about it. You might describe somebody else you know as being pure in heart, but for those of us who are honest with our own inner life, few of us would say that it actually describes us. And to add to the pragmatic confusion about who is actually pure in heart, I think there's also historical and emotional baggage around the concept of purity, especially if you came of age in the late 80s and the 90s and the, the, the early 2000s, uh, growing up around... Um, purity culture in, in the, the church. So we had books like uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. We have the whole uh, True Love Waits movement. Now, I want to be clear. Like when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not talking chiefly about sexual purity, though he's certainly not ruling it out. 
But I want to follow this bunny trail and talk about purity culture for a moment as a way of demonstrating a broader point in our thinking about purity. So if we go back to the origins of the purity culture movement, uh, as a reaction to the sexual licentiousness of the 60s and the 70s and the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, uh, proponents of the purity culture movement wanted to advocate for sexual wisdom. So church leaders and parents really wanted their children to be well and to be wise and to be different. Purity culture is the term often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity balls. How many of you were a part of of those in one way or another? Like you hosted these, you can raise your hand, or like you got a True Love Waits ring, a bunch of you are lying to me, you're lying, okay. Purity pledges are vows taken by teenagers and young adults to abstain from sex before marriage. A prime example is the original pledge from the book True Love Waits, which read, Believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, those I date, and my future mate to be sexually pure until the day I enter marriage. Purity rings are sometimes worn as an outward symbol by those who made a purity pledge. And purity balls, or father-daughter purity balls, are formal dance events attended by fathers and their daughters that promote virginity until marriage for teenage girls. At the balls, the fathers would often sign a pledge that they would be the example of purity and model integrity for their daughter. Uh, The the purity culture movement was really, really well-intentioned, but it's also come with a lot of criticism. In fact, Josh Harris, who wrote the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye, recently retracted the work and is no longer allowing it to be published. This is what he said recently. He said, in an effort to set a high standard, my book emphasized practices such as not dating, not kissing before marriage, and concepts like giving your heart away that are not in the Bible. In trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, it instilled fear for some, fear of making mistakes or having their heart broken. The book also gave some the impression that a certain methodology of relationships would deliver a happy ever after ending, a great marriage, a great sex life, even though it's not promised by Scripture. A lot of folks experienced purity culture as a combination of shaming while promoting self-fulfillment. And so girls in, in the purity culture movement were often taught not to be a stumbling block to boys. Um, that's where, you know, the whole modesty conversations come in. That comes with the invention of the side hug as a result of purity culture. <laughs> One girl told me that a youth pastor quoted to her the verse from Jesus, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble as a way of telling women it's your responsibility not to make boys have lustful thoughts. Talk about the responsibility that puts on young women. Uh, Also told me that a youth pastor got together in a room like this and took a single rosebud and handed it to one person and had the rosebud handed all the way around the room until it got back to the speaker and looked very different than the pure state in which it started as a way of demonstrating if you allow yourself to be handled by lots of people, you're going to be used goods and no one is going to want you after that. Talk about the burden of shame. In an article by Vice Magazine, a non-Christian magazine, author Linda K. Klein says this. She said, in purity culture, both young men and women are taught that sex before marriage is wrong, something I happen to agree with. But it's teenage girls who end up most affected, Klein finds, because while boys are taught that their minds are a gateway to sin, 
Women are taught that their bodies are. That's much more central. It's much more like core to your identity. After years of being told that they're responsible for not only their own purity, but the purity of the men and boys around them and of associating sexual desire with depravity and shame, Klein writes, those feelings often haunt women's relationships with their bodies for a lifetime. Here's the point. In an effort to promote sexual wisdom, the church leaders and parents who were really well-intentioned in the 90s and the 2000s unintentionally heaped truckloads of shame on young women and men, causing them to scold themselves for any sexual desire or impulse whatsoever that may threaten the possibility of irrevo- irrevocably taking away their purity, irrevocably stealing or staining their innocence. Rather than teaching teenagers that sexuality was a good thing that God created to be enjoyed within his boundaries, sexuality became a universally naughty thing, a source of shame and self-hatred and obsession. And the consequences of this, the unintended consequences of purity culture, are really great. Um, there, There are those who grow up in the church and who feel utterly ashamed of every sexual impulse, even if it's within an appropriate context that God designed. They're those people who, uh, who made poor choices and were so overwhelmed by shame and knew that they couldn't keep themselves from being used goods or used merchandise that they took themselves out of the church altogether because they couldn't bear the shame. And then there are also those kids who grew up in evangelical purity, church, purity culture churches where they were so ashamed of all sexuality and sexual desires that it even eluded them in marriage, that even in marriage they couldn't enjoy this thing that God had given. Now, I'm about to get to my point. Some of you are like, what on earth are you doing? Purity culture seemed to have adopted this really faulty script that's going to give us some insights into the nature of purity as we talk about it in the Beatitudes. Well, here's the faulty script. I hope that you, that you notice it right away. The purity culture movement assumes at the very beginning that we all start pure, that you can choose to stay pure, that you ruin your purity by sexuality outside of marriage, that girls' bodies are inherently a threat to boys' purity, that boys can't control their desires, therefore girls must through modesty, that sexual desire is universally a sin to be ashamed of, and if you stay pure, you'll have a great marriage and a great sex life. If you don't stay pure, you're damaged goods and will ruin your future marriage. This point, which has been unintentionally communicated, has ruined a lot of lives. There's a lot of unwinding and healing that I think the Lord wants to do about that. And then finally, it's on you to keep yourself pure, so don't screw it up. Now, they would never say this directly, but the unintentional lessons have have, have been proven loud and clear over time. The internal logic, especially those first three points that you start pure, and if you screw it up, it's on you, have rung loud and clear. And I would guess that there are folks here, you haven't thought about a purity ring in the longest time, or you wouldn't name purity culture as being something that tripped you up. But at the core of your identity, you experience deep shame because this script has been forced on you. And I want you to know that this script is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's a better version? What's a truer version that might give us insight into biblical purity, what Jesus might be getting at when he talks about blessed are the pure? 
and heart. Well, here's a gospel version of it. Gospel script for purity. One, your first fact is that you are loved by God and created in His image. That your gender is a gift of God, not inherently a threat. That sexuality is a gift of God. Next, we see because of the fall, our sense of identity and our desires become misaligned with God's best for us. Next, because of his love for us, Jesus died on the cross so we can be regarded as righteous and pure in God's sight. It's not on you. You can't pure yourself into reality. Six, by trusting in Jesus and cooperating with the Holy Spirit, God renews and transforms our hearts to help us live in purity. And this might be the best news of all for some of you. When we fail, God does not shame us, but lovingly invites us to put to death the sinful nature and to keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the point that the purity culture movement just failed miserably. When it comes to passing the purity test, all of us are failures. Whether it's sexual purity and staying within the boundaries that God has designed for our flourishing, whether it's spiritual purity and truly loving God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength and having an unadulterated affection for Him, never, never compromising that, we've all failed in spiritual purity. Whether it's relational purity and being, being true, being loyal to the significant relations in your life, whether it's vo- vocational purity, like truly operating out of a mature sense of integrity and, and, and complete ethics, when it comes to these purity tests, we all fail. We all blow it. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As a result of the fall, we all fail the purity test, and we cannot self-generate purity. But while I want to indict the purity culture movement for heaping truckloads of shame on far too many of us, I want to redeem for us the concept of purity as both a gift of God and something that is a reality within our hearts that we're invited to cultivate. It's a gift of God. Giving us the gift of purity is a gift of God through Jesus Christ and a state of heart that God wants us to ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate within us. Great prayer uh, comes from Psalm 51. It's a prayer requesting a pure heart. But it doesn't come from a guy who has one. It comes from David just on the heels of his adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. It's a guy who is impure, asking God to give him this gift and to cultivate a pure heart within him. David prayed, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfeeling love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now pay attention to the verbiage here. Pay attention to the words in in yellow. David prays, have mercy, blot out, wash away, cleanse me, cleanse me, wash me, create in me, renew in me. 
David's quest for purity is not self-generated. David knows his own guilt. He knows his own impurity, his screw-ups, his failures, his proclivities. He says, my sin is always before me. Some of you came to church today, and you're like, when you get reoriented and thinking about the God space, you start thinking about the stupid things you've done this week that make you unworthy to be here. That's how you feel. Some of you, you know what it's like to have your sin always before you. Maybe other people have forgiven, but the, the script that you adopted was that God forgives, but he never forgets. And sometime he's going to throw it back in your face and shame you. Some of you know what it's like to have your sin always before you. And so David goes on because his sin is always before him. He goes on to ask God to mercifully wash him, to cleanse him, to do what he cannot. And in this quest for purity, we see in contrast to the purity culture movement, it's not something that we can will into perpetual reality as if we stay pure and if we're just good enough, we can stay that way forever. There's a recognition that we need divine assistance. David is utterly reliant on the work of God. And one of the things I want you to note in this text here is that while, while God does the work of cleansing, of washing, of purifying, of renewing, David asks him to do it. And it demonstrates for us the cooperative dynamic at work in the divine human relationship, that God ultimately honors your intentions. If you don't want anything to do with the things of God, he's not going to force it upon you. And if you do, or if you're hungry, thirsty for God to be at work in your life, he'll also honor that prayer. God does the work, but David asks him to do it. This cooperative relationship where God respects human intentions and human will. And in this way, Ben brought up that the Garden of Eden imagery of Adam and Eve becoming aware of their shame. In this way, there's a kind of divine undoing of Adam and Eve's failure in the garden. God, who honors human intentions, receives his prodigals back and lovingly mends them and puts them back together. God, in his mercy, covers their shame. In his mercy, he makes garments for them so so that their sin will not always be before them. And it helps us to get at the primary insight of purity, the thing that Jesus was at all along. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The primary invitation of purity is not a clean conscience alone. The primary invitation of purity is restored relationship and seeing God. You know the old song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? It's a great song. I I get the sentiment. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I like the sentiment, but I would change the metaphor. The things of earth in the light of Jesus become strangely clear. As we see him, we gain the clarity and the wisdom to see each other, to see ourselves, and to see the world as it really is. Some of the folks in our congregation, as we're getting older, know what it's like to have cataracts. What a pain in the butt to have, or have floaters and like you can't see clearly. Then you go to the doctor and removes them and then all of a sudden your vision is opened up. Sin obscures our vision. A behaving in ways that are rebellious, shame obscures our vision. We cannot see ourselves, we cannot see God, and we cannot see our world in clarity. Paul said it in the letter to the Corinthians that the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers. 
We have cataracts in our vision. We grow blind and callous because we believe the lies of the enemy. We believe the lie that we can make ourselves pure and we find ourselves still limping along in life. The goal of purity is not just purity. The goal of purity is restored relationship. It's seeing God clearly. And there are those moments in life where you get a clear glimpse of God in yourself. There are those moments in life, and I pray that for, for some folks in our church who are like who are on, on, the, on the lamb, who are running away from God. There's moments of clarity when you realize, oh my gosh, I've been an idiot. Oh, this is what I've been doing to the people around me. Oh my gosh, I've got to change. Oh my gosh, I've got to run the opposite direction. Those are moments of grace. God gives us clarity to see ourselves as we are, to see our choices, those consequences as they really are. God gives us the grace to change. He purifies us, gives us a glimpse of clarity, if just for a moment, so that we can choose the way of peace. It's like, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. My kids are still requesting to listen to the Muppets Christmas Carol in the car. And so I hear about Scrooge every week. A guy who gets a moment of clarity and sees himself as he is. Saw in a moment what others had been seeing all along. The invitation toward purity is an invitation toward clarity, to seeing God and to seeing ourselves. The purifying work of the Spirit leads to greater personal encounter with the living, of, the living God. And this work of purity is something that we can ask for, and it's something that we can encourage. It's not something that we can strong hand into reality on our own. The purifying work of the Holy Spirit is something that we can ask for and something that we can encourage, which has profound personal implications for us. And in just a moment, we have this sweet, sweet space where we're going to prepare to receive Holy Communion. Music's going to be playing. You're not looking at your phone. Your children are not currently bothering you. Like, you're not going to get your phone out and look at text messages right now. We have this quiet space where we're given uh, this invitation from the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts, to invite the Spirit to do a work in us that we might not even have the presence of mind to ask Him to do as we're doing our thing the rest of the week. I would see four implications, personal implications for this invitation toward purity. The first is to invite the Holy Spirit to purify and restore your identity. And this has to do with the problem of shame. And some of you, maybe it began when you were a teenager. Maybe it was because of something really, really foolish that you did as an adult, and you feel like you're, you know, the woman in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, where your sin is always before you and in front of everybody else. Maybe you screwed up royal, royally and everyone knows it, or maybe you're keeping a secret that no one but God knows, but you walk around with shame. In just your self-concept, you think that you are not a person that's worthy of love. That is a lie. The, the Jesus' offer to die on the cross for us says a better word than the word of judgment that you would say about yourself or the enemy would say about you. So this morning might be a space where we invite the Holy Spirit to do a restorative work in our identity to purify our sense of self, to restore our sense of self. Who am I in Jesus Christ? I'm a person in whom there's no condemnation. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm counted as part of the family of God. I'm a son of God, a daughter of God, beloved in His sight. He's pleased with me. 
If your soul needs to hear these truths, invite the Spirit of God to cause His voice to reverberate louder than the voice of the enemy or the voice of judgment within your own heart. He wants to do that work. Invite Him to do it. I think we can invite the Holy Spirit to purify your longings. We all know we have proclivities that lead us off course. Uh, oh, what is, the, what is the line in, uh, I didn't even plan it, the line in, come thou fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I don't want to do that stupid stuff, and yet I want to do it more than anything else. Would you purify my heart? Would you write my intentions? Would you change the longings of my heart and help them to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Invite the Holy Spirit to restore your identity. Invite the Holy Spirit to purify your longings. And then, I think this is the great payoff of Jesus' beatitude, invite the Holy Spirit to help you to see God. To see God. This leads us to encounter. And then, I think the important thing in all of this is to cooperate with whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. David initiated the work, but this initiation of the work of the Spirit always assumes cooperation, that God's going to invite us to do something in the process. I've cited recently uh, Jesus' other teaching, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go and talk to him. Do your best to reconcile, to rectify it. God invites us to do stuff. This is meant to be a team relationship, a relationship of collaboration and cooperation. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, and however quiet a whisper it may be, just do it. The Holy Spirit wants to do a liberating work in the hearts of many of us in this room who for too long have lived with shame at the core of your identity and shame about the nature of your longings, and the Holy Spirit of God wants to restore and purify you. We have to bring what is in the dark into the light. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and He'll forgive us our sins, and He'll purify us of all unrighteousness. If we claim that we're without sin, we lie and we prove that the truth is not in us. We bring into the light. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's a restored relationship, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do a work of transformation in the hearts of many individuals in this room today. But I think this invitation toward toward purity also has profound corporate implications as we think about our calling and our mission as a church. Throughout church history, God has done this unique regenerative work in seasons of great awakening in the church where God accelerated the normal work of the Holy Spirit, and we saw amazing breakthroughs. Things that you'd pray for that would normally take 10 years, take one year. We see rapid transformation, the acceleration of the work of the Holy Spirit and spiritual awakening. There have been times throughout history where God, in His mercy, has chosen to do this, and it has always been preceded by seasons of repentance in the church. This repentance and a return to purity has always preceded revival. I love the Hebridean revival in the Scottish Isles in the early 1950s. And the Lord led this community in a season of repentance to Psalm 24, a psalm that I memorized as a freshman in college while I was working at Office Depot. I walked around with this little index card in my pocket and I remembered it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? 
And who can stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false or swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God our Savior. And the church in the Hebrides and Isle, the, the Isles of the Hebrides began to pray Psalm 24. God, do we have clean hands and pure hearts before you? Would you search our minds? Would you search our identity? Would you search our behavior? Reveal to us that which is in rebellion. Bring all of our bodies, all of our person, all of our longings under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as the people began to cry out with deep awareness of their sins, asking God to purify and restore them, he began to move in power. Their welcome embrace of God's purifying work prepared them to receive God's work of power. And I want to admonish and encourage all of us today to welcome the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to speak those words of blessing and truth over you in your core identity where you feel yourselves to be just used goods or dirty or, or unworthy of love. Invite the Spirit of God to speak a word of truth to the core of who you are, that He loves you and you are worthy of love. To invite the Spirit of God to reroute your longings that are misguided and to bring you into alignment with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And challenge each of us to welcome the Holy Spirit and to pay attention to those little nods, those little prods that where he says, do this, and we want to have the courage to follow. We want to be the kind of individuals and the kind of church who, who can be trusted with the awakening and the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. And it begins in this invitation toward purity. Not something we can muster on our own, but a collaborative effort with the Spirit of God, inviting Him to purify us from the inside out and giving us the courage to follow Him on the outside. If there's an ounce of faith within you that desires to be free of that shame, to be rerouted from the course of, uh, towards your own destruction, the Spirit of God is here and He will hear your prayer. Voice it. Invite Him to do this work and it will bring Him deep joy. Let's pray together. And if you're serving communion, I'd invite you to come too. If you're here and in just the core of your identity, you have believed a load of nonsense about who you are. I tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are loved. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus does not want to rub your face in your sin. You are not used goods. You are not unworthy of love. He proved his love for us in this. While we were at our worst, he died for us. So you tell your soul the truth. And if you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, you're aware of your sin, you're aware of your impurity, I invite you just to confess your need of him and receive his gift of dignity and mercy and forgiveness and purification. If you're struggling today with, with desires that are leading you off course, invite the Spirit of God to reroute those, to transform you. For those of you who are hungering and thirsting for more of God, say, Lord Jesus, I entrust my purity to you. Would you open up my eyes and help me to see more of you? Maybe today would be a day for many of us where we draw a line in the sand. We say enough is enough with this old way of living. With the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature and stand into my dignity as an image bearer and a son and a daughter of God. The Spirit will do this work in you. Will you invite it? 
Thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. I pray that you pour out your spirit on us as we gather around the table. Accompany this bread and juice to make it be for us something so much more than that. May it be the life of God entering our life and changing us from the inside out. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.